This program is brought to you by the partners of A Root Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support A Root Awakening International today. We believers are about to face the most challenging test in history, and some of us are going to fail. Twisted doctrines have been woven into the fabric of our faith for centuries, rendering us unprepared for what is coming. Joel Richardson takes the blinders off to help us understand where we've gone wrong and what we need to do to prepare for what's next, because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun is set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Shabbat Shalom to our fans. Welcome to Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rood. Tonight, we are starting a new series with Joel Richardson called What the Bible Really Says. This is an important series for you to show to family and friends because it exposes some assumptions we have made about the Bible and reveals how we may have read it wrong or mixed it with church traditions that led us to believe things that the Bible doesn't really teach. And right now, the calendar says we are on the fourth and final Shabbat of the seventh month on the astronomically and agriculturally corrected biblically Hebrew calendar. Now, please welcome my co-host, uh, the CEO of Arud Awakening International, Ted Clayton. Well, Scott, thank you for letting me be here. And ladies and gentlemen, you're not gonna wanna miss this teaching. Joel Richardson has a really incredible teaching tonight. Call your friends, call your neighbors, call oh, your yeah. family. This is something you're going to really want your friends and neighbors to see. Yeah, and he exposes some things. He calls some people out and says, look, I'm sorry, but there, even some movies uh, in this series, you'll say, look, there's a movie that's out. It's wrong. Yeah. Please don't be sucked in by it. Yeah. Uh, so it's some really good information there for friends and family. And uh, actually, for friends and family, speaking of which, if you want to mm. get them something really cool for maybe Hanukkah or something coming up, uh, we have an offer that ends this Sunday, and it is the Name of God hoodie. And it comes in sizes uh, four to, uh, small to 4XL. That's right. So well, it fits everybody. So small to fits me. <laughs> I think that's you are not four XL. <laughs> Maybe you used to be, but not anymore. That's You're taking right. care of yourself now. No, that's right. No, don't say you're four XL. Come on. That's right. So, but you can get it or black and black or white. Uh -huh. uh, so there's you know right white writing on the black one and black writing on the white one. And it's the name of God. It says uh, it actually looks just like this, like the this month's love gift. That's looks right. Like Yehovah. That's right. So the Aleppo Codex. Yep. And ladies and gentlemen, you know. These, these things are just fantastic to have discussions with your friends and family about your beliefs and your faith. And uh, I mean, how can it hurt to have the name of God on your shirt <laughs> right. moving forward as you're going down the street or, or going down the sidewalk? So yep. it's, it's something really nice. It's gonna keep you nice and warm uh, this uh, fall and winter, and we would just love for you to get one. Now, speaking of Joel Richardson and all the stuff that he's yes. doing with us this month, the, the love gift is also from him. Yes. Uh, it's the pre-tribulation trap, or the pre-trib trap, as we call it. Well, what is that about now, Scott? Well, let me read the back here. That might explain it. Uh, okay. In the pre-trib trap, Joel Richardson reminds both church-going Christians and Torah-observant believers Okay. It's not just about pre-trib. Uh, that trusting right. in man, so traditions, things we've made yes. up, all this kind of like maybe you know legends, if you will, yeah. instead of Yehovah's word is a slippery slope, especially when it comes to the lost books not That's found right. in the Bible. And we That's know right. that a lot of, I, hey, I sometimes we talk about these things at Sabbath gatherings yes. too. We gotta be careful where we go with these things because right. it's not the word. So That's we just right. gotta remember to be careful with that. So we'll let the commercial do the talking about all this yeah. kind of stuff. But uh, so remember that the hoodie ends uh, Sunday. That's right. And uh, actually we have something from Michael coming up, which is why we're hurrying up here. That's so right. Let's get to that. Okay, so. Twisted doctrines have been woven into the fabric of our faith for centuries, rendering us unprepared for what is coming. But Joel Richardson takes the blinders off tonight to help us understand where we've gone wrong. So right now though, here is our final mini episode of Temple Treasures with Michael Rood. After the sin sacrifice is accepted, the altar of sacrifice reminds us that the only appropriate and reasonable response to Yeshua's sacrifice is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and set apart to serve him. The holy place of Solomon's temple was exactly four times larger than the tabernacle in the wilderness. On the porch outside the holy sanctuary stood two colossal brass pillars, 18 cubits, 31 feet tall, 12 cubits in circumference, six and a half feet in diameter, and one handbreadth, five inches thick. Atop each hollow column sat a solid brass capital, five divine or royal Egyptian cubits, eight and a half feet tall, and six and a half feet in diameter. As required with brass, they were cast molten in one continuous pour. The gigantic farms were constructed in the clay pits down in the Dead Sea Valley, and the pillars and their capitals were transported up to the Temple Mount after casting and polishing. For 500 years, those five cubit capitals stood atop massive 31-foot columns. Then, Nebuchadnezzar's army destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Scriptures tell us that those five cubit capitals were only three cubits tall after the temple was destroyed. What happened to 41.25 imperial inches of solid brass sitting atop those gigantic columns? The Chaldeans looted and burned the temple, carrying away all the firepans, snuffers, and vessels of brass. The temple treasures were meticulously inventoried, documented, and returned to Jerusalem at the conclusion of our exile. But what happened to the priceless menorah, the gold table of showbread, and the gold altar of incense? And what became of the holiest object on planet Earth? the unapproachable, untouchable, irreplaceable Ark of the Covenant, the throne of the future king. That is the greatest secret of Solomon's temple. The book of Maccabees records that Jeremiah was instructed by God to buy a parcel of land from his cousin Hanamiel and to bury the two title deeds in an earthen vessel in that land. During the Babylonian siege, Jeremiah was instructed to take the Ark of the Covenant, the remains of the Tabernacle of David, and the articles of furniture, and to hide them in a cave in that same parcel of land. He then told the priests who accompanied him, this place shall remain unknown until the time Yehovah shall gather his people and manifest his mercy unto them. Then Yehovah will reveal and confirm these things. The Shekinah, the cloud of glory of Yehovah, shall then appear above the mercy seat just as when his glory was manifest to Moses and just as when Moses dedicated the temple. Jeremiah prophesied of the future revealing of the Ark of the Covenant. And the angel Gabriel spoke to Daniel about the confirmation of the covenant and the prophet Amos confirmed that the Gentiles will be instrumental in rebuilding the tabernacle of David, which is broken down and hidden in a cave with the Ark of the Covenant. When the Ark of the Covenant is revealed and the covenant is confirmed, that will begin the last seven years of the age. The pre-tribulation rapture was developed from mistaken ideas less than 200 years ago. Yeshua did not teach it. The apostles did not teach it. So where does this modern doctrine come from? People watching this right now, people alive, our brothers and sisters will face the great trial, the great test of our faith. And you have all of these preachers who are literally lying, saying, oh, don't worry. In this month's exclusive love gift teaching, Joel Richardson reminds both church-going Christians and Torah-observant believers that trusting in man instead of Yehovah's Word is a slippery slope, especially when it comes to lost books not found in our Bible. The Pre-Trib Trap with Joel Richardson is not available anywhere online, but we'll give it to you as our thanks for supporting A Rude Awakening International. 
when you donate $50 to this ministry in October, we'll send you The Pre-Trib Trap with Joel Richardson on DVD or Blu-ray. Donate $100 and we'll send you The Pre-Trib Trap plus a custom-made slate wall hanging featuring a laser etching of the Hebrew name of God from the Aleppo Codex. Donate $300 and we'll send you The Pre-Trib Trap, the custom-made slate wall hanging, and a framed replica of the Isaiah scroll fragment dated 125 BCE, bearing Isaiah 60 verse 1. These gifts are a limited time offer from Michael Rood to thank you for your support. Make your donation today and receive the $50 gift, the $100 gift, or the $300 gift. Thank you. Your donations ensure that important teachings like the pre-trib trap keep coming from a Rood Awakening International. Use your cell phone to scan the QR code on your screen to donate now and receive these limited time gifts. Or call 888-766-3610 or get your gifts online with a donation at monthlylovegift.com. Hi, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Ted Clayton. And I'm Michael Rood. And ladies and gentlemen, we got a special thing happening here. And here work. it is, Ted. What is it? The Chronological Gospels are now in Spanish. Yes, the Chronological Gospels are now in Spanish. And the Spanish-speaking world is going crazy over the Chronological yeah. Gospels. But here's the problem. It could cost as much as the book cost to ship it to South America, oh, yeah. as much as $30 a book, Michael. We need some help on that. If you would prayerfully consider today a donation of $30 to offset the cost of shipping, because folks, in South America, $30 could be half a month or a month's pay. Would you please prayerfully consider giving that $30 today to help ship the Chronological Gospels to South America? We need their help. Thank you. Thank you very much. God bless. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, said that David, King David, was a prophet who saw beforehand the coming of the Messiah. He saw that his son, the Messiah, would be the Kohen Gadol forever after the order of the Melech Zadik. And Yeshua, ordained as the Melech Zadik, as the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, brought forth bread and wine in Yeshua. On the night in which he was betrayed, brought forth bread and wine and interpreted the very thing that Abraham saw so many generations before. Yeshua took bread and he spoke this blessing. Baruch atah Yehovah elam heinu malach ha'olam. Homotzi lechem min ha'aretz. And he broke the bread and he said, this broken bread represents my broken body, which will be broken for you. By my stripes, you will be healed. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm paying the price. Then he took the wine and he said, Marukata Yehovah Elohim Melech HaOlam. Berei Pari Hagafen. Blessed are you, Yehovah, our God, creator of the heavens and the earth and the creator of the fruit of the vine. And he said, this represents the renewed covenant, which will be paid for in my blood. As often as you break this bread and you drink this cup, you exhibit what I've done for you because I am making you priest and kings. I'm paying the price. Shabbat Shalom, priests and kings. There are many things we learned in our previous church lives that we never questioned. And 20, 30 years ago, maybe there was no need to question them. Well, now it's obvious that things are happening in the world and unless you're blind, you can see that things are starting to progress very, very quickly. We need to re-examine the things that we're taught, especially if they were incorrect. What is coming? What will we go through as God's people? Let's get some clarity on this. And we are welcomed by our friend, Joel Richardson. Joel, welcome back to Shabbat Night Live. It's great to be back. You know, they're, they're, we're gonna stir up some dust and uh, slaughter some sacred cows in this series. And I'm glad we are, because to your point, uh, it's 
it's time to stop playing games. This is getting serious, and we need to really understand what our Bible says and what it doesn't. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I've been, I've been in public ministry, I'd say, for about 20 years now. And throughout most of that time, I've largely tried to avoid the issue of the rapture. Um, it's an incredibly controversial issue. People say it's divisive, don't bring it up, it's not essential, this type of thing. And I, you know, I, I don't want to cause unnecessary controversy. And I know a lot of the folks who have listened to me and read my books and so forth are coming from the pre-tribulational camp. Um, this past year, I mean, obviously, as you just said, you look out at the world, um, it doesn't, you, you can have the discernment of a rock and recognize that something is brewing. It's, it's not even brewing. It's not like it's brewing on the horizon. It's over the roofs of our homes. You know, it's not, you know, we used to say, well, the storm's coming. You can see it on, no, it's here. It's here now. And so this past year, the Lord has really just laid it on my heart. There's no more time to play games. There's no more time to play church politics. The pre-tribulational, the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture is a demonic stronghold in the church, in the body of Christ. And, um, you know, I may lose a lot of supporters and different things like that, but I've, I feel strongly from the Lord that now is the time to really start exposing this, as I said, demonic stronghold, this false doctrine for what it is, because the church needs to be prepared. The body of Christ, the body of Messiah needs to be prepared. And the bottom line is we're not. We have been hamstrung, we have been inoculated to actually hear what the scriptures actually have to say with regard to the, the storms that are here, but they're gonna get a lot worse. And so, um, yeah, we're going after the, the issue of the pre-tribulational rapture and we're going very strong. So now I've heard this all throughout, you know, when I was a kid and we had the, uh, the Left Behind series and all that kind of stuff and on all these things. So where did this all come from? I mean, what's the history of the, the pre-tribulation rapture? I mean, is this what the church fathers taught? I mean, where are we getting this from? Yeah, so what's amazing is when you actually do read through carefully and survey the early church writers, the early church fathers, first century, second century, all the way up until the medieval period, you will not find a single statement anywhere where they believed that the church would be raptured before the tribulation. They all universally believed that we as the church, as the saints, would face the Antichrist in the Great Tribulation, unarguably. Now, what's amazing is you've got a whole bunch of folks now that are trying to claim otherwise. That's a whole another issue. It's a lie. It's a deception. Like, it is a brazen lie that is being told. But that said, obviously, after the Reformation, people start returning to the Scriptures, start reading the Scriptures. In terms of their understanding of the last days, it was very blurry for a while, let's just say. There was a lot of confusion. But the more that people started studying the Scriptures, they started gaining clarity. So in the 1800s, you had this group called the Plymouth Brethren Movement out of the UK. So you had John Nelson Darby, and then he had a handful of disciples. So you had Schofield was his disciple, of course. He went on to write the Schofield Reference Bible, and they sort of did the American church circuit. And in many ways, I'll just say they won the PR campaign, right? So whoever wins, whoever controls the narrative wins. Whoever writes history wins. And the bottom line is, among these guys, there was a debate. You had uh, one guy named B.W. Newton, another guy named S.P. Tregellis, brilliant, amazing. You read their books, you go, these guys were geniuses, okay? They also came out of the Plymouth Brethren movement. They were post-tribulational. They believed that the church would face the Antichrist. But it was Darby and Schofield who, again, won the campaign. They won the PR campaign. So then coming into the last century, the 20th century, because pre-tribulationism basically dominated the American church, all of the seminaries, all of the publishing houses were pre-trib. Mm. So if you were not pre-trib, you couldn't really get published. You couldn't teach at the seminaries. And so, you know, sort of... They never let poor Rudolph join in any reindeer. You know, so if you were if you were post-trib, you were sort of on the peripheral. And you, you were wrong. Yeah, you were just in many ways, and it's not the way the manner in which this peripheral doctrine. They'll all say, "Well, it's peripheral. Don't divide over it." But then they'll preach it in this absolutely dogmatic way. 
like not like I could be wrong, here's one of a few possibilities. You, they, they reassure their people, you will not see the tribulation. And so anyway, you know, then coming into the latter period of last century, the internet, information revolution, people start studying these things. People are leaving the pre-tribulational, that doctrine behind in droves. And they're embracing either pre-wrath or post-trib, which is good, but there's still a very significant demonic stronghold. And I'm using these terms, I know it's people, that's inflammatory. This is not intended to insult anyone. You can attack an idea without attacking the individual that holds the idea. We need to separate the, the, the two. But unarguably, this is a, a belief that has deep roots in large segments of the body of Christ. And again, whatever the American church believes and teaches, that's disseminated to the world. So unfortunately, it's not just an American problem, it's a global problem. And uh, it's a genuinely cultic, demonic stronghold, and it needs to be broken, not just through teaching, but through actual intercession and prayer, because now is the time for us to really get ready. The finals are about to be here, to use the university analogy. You can, you can do great all semester, but if you fail the finals, you can fail out. And that's the way the scriptures present the great tribulation. You can run the race solid right up until the end, but if you fail the finals, you can bonk out just before the finish line. And that's, that's what I feel the Lord's heart is burning for right now, is saying there's a lot of people that are not prepared for, the, for what's about to slap the church upside the head. So why do you call this demonic? I mean, you think they were, uh, these early church fathers were deceived, they read the Bible wrong. Like, how did they even get this idea from, I mean, the, the Bible hasn't changed, the words on the page don't change. So what were they reading into it that we see as different? I mean, what, what, what do you think happened there? No, I mean, so the early church fathers had the rapture right. They had that issue right. The early church got off very quickly in that they became this Gentile-dominated movement. And I'll just say Gentile arrogance uh, always produces the same thing. And they have a very New Testament-centric way of reading the Bible. They just read the New Testament, so dabble in the Old Testament a little bit. And so they got into replacement theology, the idea that the church is the new Israel, that we've replaced Israel, that God has done away with Israel, rather than Israel being partially and temporarily hardened. No, they were permanently um, exiled and this type of thing. So the early church got into error. That's the first way that they tripped and stumbled. Um, but when it comes to the rapture, they were right. They believed the church would face the Antichrist, face the tribulation, and needed to be prepared for that. It's not until the 1800s, again, with John Nelson Darby, and you, you, you do start seeing some random statements, I'll even say as far back as the 1600s, where you'll get some random person that makes some kind of confused statement about the tribulation and suggests like things like a partial rapture, you know, like the real hardcore faithful, they might get raptured early or that type of thing. You, you start seeing some of these statements, but it's not until literally 200 years ago, no one believed, hmm. none of the church, believed in a pre-tribulational rapture. It is a modern novelty. It's a new doctrine. It has never been held by believers like throughout the history, 2000 years until 200 years ago. And this is so important for those that hold this doctrine to recognize this was not taught by the apostles. It was not passed off to the early church. No one believed it until very recently. Mm. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because even Yeshua said, you know, they hated me, so they're going to hate you. You're not gonna escape anything, no matter what time period you live in, right? Especially now. Peter, who said, I'm gonna stick with you right to the end. Well, he, he falls away. Now, that's another aspect of it, too. Like, is this gonna cause a, a, a falling away, this, this test that is coming? How do you see that? Yeah, look, in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Jesus says very clearly, I think it's verse nine, he says, at that time, many will fall away. So the, overwhel the overarching warning concerning the tribulation is don't be deceived. Deception, and he says, and many will fall away. So now you have the modern church who has really widely embraced two doctrines, two demonic lies. The pre-tribulational rapture and this once saved, always saved. Now, I wanna be careful here because I have a high view of the sovereignty and the keeping power of God. 
okay? But throughout the scriptures, you have numerous warnings. Paul the Apostle says, test yourselves, test yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Here's Paul the Apostle checking to see if he's even really a believer. And what he means by that is examine your actions, your thoughts, the meditations of your heart, do they align with the things that you say you believe? Is my life in the secret place, it, does it align with the things that I've confessed publicly? And if not, then he goes, then you might, you might be lying to yourself, you might be a hypocrite. You see these type of warnings throughout scripture and those that hold to the once saved, always saved doctrine, they have a great way of just disregarding, ignoring, or just twisting these passages, but we have to take them seriously, regardless as to where we stand on the whole Calvinism, Arminian debate, and that whole thing, there are clear warnings throughout the scriptures that say that we can fall away. That we can, and the bottom line is, Scott, you and I, I guarantee you, we can probably both list a dozen people that we've known that walked with Yeshua, that were believers that have walked away. You know, if you stick around long enough, you will see people that were once solid missionaries who have actually renounced Yeshua. They've renounced Jesus. So people say, well, one, they weren't really believers. I go, really? Because they were fasting and praying and living and giving, and giving their lives to this thing as much as you or I, and they sure believed they were believers. You know, so you can say, well, they weren't really saved, whatever, from God's perspective. But the bottom line is we all need to be walking in such a way that says, take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. Peter goes, not me, I'm, I'm hardcore, I'll never reject you, next thing you know, I don't know the man, you know, and this type of thing. And so the combination of these two doctrines, people believe I'm never gonna see the great tribulation, I'm never gonna face the antichrist, and I can never lose my faith, I can never walk away, I can never fall away, no matter how I live or act, and the church is about to face the greatest trial and test of her faith in the history of the church, and you've got all these preachers saying, don't worry about that. You're never gonna face the, like, can you imagine telling your kids, don't worry, you're never gonna have to take the finals. They're going to school, they're working hard, they're doing good, but don't worry, you're exempt. You're not gonna have to take the finals. That's the greatest way to set them up to fail the finals, is to tell them you don't have to take the finals. Mm. And so that's what we're dealing with right now is the church has embraced these two together toxic doctrines which are leaving the body unprepared for the storms that are, they're about to face, for the tests that we're about to face. And so these things need to be spoken. If we have a pastor's heart, look, am I trying to win friends right now? <laughs> am I trying to serve the Lord? If we have a genuine shepherd's heart, the shepherds, the pastors out there need to take this up because it is a glaring disease right now in the body of Christ. I think one, Michael Root is in the, the, in the studio with us today watching from back there and I, one of the things he told me just a couple weeks ago when we were in here, he says, remember, no one is saved until the resurrection. That's true. Really, truly saved. You are saved from what? And I think with that in mind and knowing that you know, we have this marriage covenant with Yeshua that, well, we're betrothed right now, mm -hmm. sure, but I mean, if you're gonna go around and play the harlot, I mean, really, if, if we are in that, that uh, the betrothed bride position and we're playing the harlot, it's up to the groom whether or not he can call it off or not. Yeah. That's what it's in, always in my heart. Like, you know, he, he could call it quits at any time, say, no, forget it. But so we need to be faithful. And that's what being faithful is. I mean, isn't it? I mean, so, so with that in mind, what do we do with this, you know, these verses that are thrown out that say, you know, uh, no one can snatch you from my hand? Because sure. that's an argument that I've heard lots with this once saved, always saved thing. Yeah, no one can snatch us out of his hand, but it doesn't say we can't walk out of his hand on our own volition, right? It's, you know, we can point to a lot of these passages, and there are passages that seem to point to his keeping power, eternal security. And then there are other passages that say, the one who endures till the end shall be saved. You can't just say, well, I choose to live by these verses, but not these. You have to reconcile them all together. The one who endures to the end shall be saved. And that's, that statement is made multiple, multiple times, especially in the context of the last days. And that's the mindset. Look, let's, let's just put this in context. Let's say someone out there is watching this and they're very offended. Let's say uh, you're talking to a friend and he says, you know, I'm, 
I'm sick of my wife. I think I'm going to leave her. Um, uh, you know, I've got a, someone else in mind. And they go, what's your advice spiritually? Do you say, well, yeah, you can do that and you'll still be saved. It's sin, but you can still do it. Or do you say, you have a choice, eternal life or your mistress? What are you going to choose, sin and rebellion or eternal life? Or do you tell them, oh, you can have both. You can have your cake and eat it too. You can have your sin. You can, you can live as a hypocrite. You can choose to be a drunkard, even though the scriptures say, drunkards, liars will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see what I'm saying? You know, so this is an issue is we have this mentality that, say, that says, I can continue a life of sin, but I'm always saved. And the scriptures say, no, you better pay attention to the way you're living because, the, look, there's plenty of deception out there. The media, public school teachers, like whatever, you know, all the sources. But the greatest source of deception is our own hearts. Like we're really good at lying to ourselves. And if we don't recognize that and aggressively go after that and recognize, yes, I can lie to myself, I can deceive myself, then we are in tremendous danger of deception. Once you acknowledge that and recognize, yes, I can walk away, I can fall away, then you're gonna guard and take sin in your life much more seriously. And I think particularly the American church, I mean, we're all susceptible to it, but this is a huge problem. Um, you know, I've got young kids. I mean, I hate to say it, but they're like typical American Christian kids. They'll say all the right things, but I look at their lives and I go, but you're doing this and this. And they're like, yeah, but dad, and they're just sort of quoting popular Christian cliches and sentiments that you'll hear preached from the pulpits. And it's largely tied to this idea, yeah, but I'm, I'm a Christian, so I'm okay. And that's just not how it works. Mm. I shouldn't expose my kids on TV, but, <laughs> but you get the idea. I mean, this is, this, is a represent, this is representative of so much of the church today. And that type of faith is not gonna make it mm -hmm. through the storms. It won't make it. Well, and even if we're honest about our own lives, I yeah. mean, it's like, yeah, we, we, we sit on this stage and we're, we're teaching the word, but we have problems in our lives, of course, and we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's what it's all about. That's why, but it's the repenting. I think that's right. what, I think, do you find that that's the biggest part is that the Christian church, and even in our own minds, some things we think, oh, I have nothing to repent for. I'm I'm saved, and so there's this not there, there's not this true repentance, stopping what you're doing, turning around, and go the other way. That's what repentance is. And do do people just not get that? Yeah, no. It's I'm, again, we lie to ourselves. It's easy. Yeah, and like like as a preacher, um, uh, well, let's just say this. You know, some people are naturally their just disposition is they play by the rules. That's not me. I've never been someone who plays by the rules. So I'm very well aware of the fact that I can easily backslide. Um, you know, like I, I'm not a drinker. It would be easy for me to become a heavy drinker. Like that would not be hard. With weed being legalized, like that was my whole childhood. It would be really easy for me to justify, you know, this or that. So, I mean, just to be honest. So there are some preachers, the way they preach, it's kind of like this. It's like, if you apply all of the principles that I'm talking about today, then you can have a blessed life like me. And I go, no, that's not how it works. It's you and I, as the, as the host of the show or the preacher, we are strugglers just like everyone else. And I think that's much more comforting to, for people to say, okay, this guy is in the word, you know, he's, he's fasting, he's praying, he's doing all these things, but he also struggles. Like I am so aware of my weaknesses, my propensities, my struggles. And this is not a, hey, if you do it right, you can be like me. It's like, no, we are all a bunch of strugglers. Let's link arms, let's be honest, and let's cross the finish line together. And I think that's really Paul's mentality. Like he, he puts out these warnings and then he says, but you, beloved, are not those, or it's actually in Hebrews, you or we are not those that turn back and are destroyed. Hmm. So he leaves it out there. He says, we can turn back. We can be destroyed. If we don't live a life of faith, it says God will take no pleasure in us. Jesus says to numerous people, I never knew you. Like that's a reality. 
But then he gives the assurance, but we are not those. We're not the ones that will turn back. And that's, I think that's the mentality that as a preacher and as a teacher, I want to convey to the body of Christ. Let's link arms. We can do this. Repentance, walking in a, in a genuinely holy lifestyle. We can do it. It's possible. The power of the Holy Spirit is enough. But we have to actually, like, who preaches repentance anymore? Who preaches eternal consequences? Hmm. Who talks about hell who talks about eternity? Like you never hear these things preached. It's very, very rare. And just everyday preachers, we need to get back to, we need to get back to the book. Hold that thought and we're gonna come back and talk more about this. Important stuff you're hearing tonight on Shabbat Night Live. You make it possible. Thanks for bringing Joel here. Uh, we pray that you are able to help us spread this to more folks into the future. Your donations make that happen. This is important stuff, especially right now. We need to get this out there as far as we can, and we wanna thank you for making that possible. We're gonna give you a couple minutes to do more of that, and just, we'll be back in a second. Thanks for your support of Shabbat Night Live. You know, it's a special day today. We've got Joel Richardson on the stage, and we've got Michael Rood in the back of the room here, and uh, during the break, we were just talking about how uh, Michael was saying, saved from what? Saved from the wrath to come. And we want to talk a little bit more about that. And in the previous segment, we were talking about how we're saved from what, but that hasn't come yet. <laughs> so we're saved in theory, but the actuality of that has not come yet. So there, we have to go through this tribulation period, especially uh, folks now in modern times are seeing this. How did church fathers see this and, and how should we see this as, as the tribulation and where we stand and, and where the rapture happens and all this stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. So when you hear this sort of discourse between pre-tribbers and post-tribbers these days, pre-tribbers will make fun of post-tribbers and say, you guys are all fear mongers. You're all about storing up beans and bullets and rice in your basement and building bunkers and this type of thing. And they can make fun of that, but when the time comes, when the storms are here and they don't have rice or beans, then it becomes a different story. But there is, there is some reality to the fact that the modern mind is primarily focused, like the modern Christian mind that believes we will face the tribulation, they're primarily concerned with surviving, with preserving their physical life. And look, that's natural. Like, if you're a dad, you should take care of your family and make sure that you can provide for them in difficult times, et cetera. And it's normal to not want to die. But when you read the writings of the early church, I don't really like to say the church fathers. That's usually the term that's used for the, I just say the early church writers. Yeah, because the church fathers, we don't necessarily agree with anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the same people, we're talking about the same people. But when you look at the way they discuss the tribulation, they, they speak not so much about trying to save their physical lives. Their primary concern was saving their souls, was preserving their souls. Their primary concern was escaping the tribulation, still being in the faith. They're like, many people will enter the tribulation and fall away. And that's exactly what Jesus said. Many will fall. You can't get around that. You can't get around that statement. And so the idea is, yes, of course, we want to try to preserve our lives. I always joke. I have such a big mouth, I'm sure I'll get beheaded within the first few weeks of the tribulation. So that'll be an easy escape, but I'm just kidding. But, um, <laughs> but my big mouth will get me, in, it gets me in trouble now, but wait till the Antichrist gets here. But, um, <laughs> but the point is this, is we need to be thinking, I mean, yes, if, again, it's okay, if you're a prepper, I think there's wisdom in being prepared and again, taking care of your family. But the main focus, the main thing that the, the, the Bible and the early church writers, their main emphasis was saving their soul, was preserving their faith, was escaping the tribulation, still being a believer. And that's a whole different mentality to the modern, comfortable, American, Christian mindset. So if we start viewing it that way, we go, okay, this is a whole different thing. I need to be preparing. Yes, it's okay to be preparing over here with, <laughs> ammunition or whatever it is. But the <laughs> beans main, and bullets. Yeah, beans and bullets. <laughs> bullets to protect the beans. So when your neighbors come over and say, hey neighbor, do you have any beans? You say, no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I will kill you. No, but the main issue, <laughs> forgive my humor, is the main issue is preparing our souls. Mm -hmm. Preparing our hearts. And look, there's only a certain amount that you can, like 
Experience is what prepares you. You can't, you know, you can't just psych yourself up. But there is something to be said for knowing that something's coming and not being shocked and surprised and confused and disappointed and disillusioned. You know, again, when we promise people repeatedly, don't worry, you will never, ever face this, we are setting them up for the greatest potential failure. And I'm not saying every pre-tribber is going to fall away. That's not the case at all. Look, you can have perfect theology and perfect understanding, but your heart still be twisted. You look at during the Shoah, during the Holocaust, you had, you know, every time I go to Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, the Holocaust Museum, I always take some time at the at the, um, they have a display for the righteous Gentiles. I go, if this Bosnian Muslim or this Turkish Muslim did the right thing, like they didn't have right theology, right? But they did the right thing. They risked their lives, they risked the lives of their family to save Jews. I go, if this guy with horrible theology did the right thing, then that says to me that people who have the wrong idea will do the right thing. There'll be many pre-tribbers that once they're in the tribulation, once the Antichrist is here, they'll say, oh, wow, I was lied to. They'll dust, they'll brush themselves off and pick up and serve faithfully. And there'll be post-tribbers that have been preparing and teaching this, and they will fall away. So it's, but nevertheless, we still want to teach right doctrine. We want to prepare people, um, you know, so with regard, again, to those that behave properly during World War II. There were plenty of people that had bad theology that did the right things, and there were plenty of people that had a good theology about Israel, but they still, rather than doing the right thing, they closed the curtains. They looked the other way. They walked away when their neighbors were being dragged out of their houses and being led away literally to the slaughter. So I just want to be clear. I'm not saying all pre-tribbers are going to fall away. That's not the case. I'm saying the potential is far greater if we have not been taught rightly. And so that's where we are right now. So how do you see this playing out then? If, if it's not pre-trib, where do you, how do you see this playing out potentially? Not to say that this is the way it is, but I mean, how, how do you read the Bible and how it reads to, to you? And like, how does this happen? Look, every single verse, every single passage in the Bible that talks about the rapture, it intricately connects it to the resurrection and the return of Jesus. Now, you could say that this singular event unfolds over a period of time. It may not necessarily happen all in an hour, an instant. I'm okay with that. You know, his return is just unfolds, that there's some events, but the scriptures clearly frame the rapture, the resurrection, and his return as all being part of the same event. The idea of separating them by seven years, almost a decade, that's crazy. There is only one coming throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament and the New. Yahweh or Yehovah is coming to save his people and execute vengeance against the wicked. He's coming. And then the New Testament, Yeshua, Peter, Paul, John, they all appropriate this language of Yehovah coming in the clouds to save his people in blazing fire with all of his holy ones. And they apply that to the return of Yeshua. And so it's a singular event. The idea of separate and, and essentially regardless pre-tribbers, whether they admit it or not, teach that there are two more comings. There's only one coming, the coming of our Lord. That is the blessed hope. There's not multiple comings. He doesn't come once to this phantom rapture and, and call us up and then almost a decade later, then come in the clouds in glory. There is only one glorious coming in blazing fire with all of his angels. We will be caught up in the clouds to meet him and then escort him back to the earth. The first triumphal entry into Jerusalem when they went out to meet him and escorted him back into the city. The word there in the Greek is, um, it's uh, apentesin. I think I have that right. I think I pronounced it right. It's referring to where you go out. It's like a royal reception committee. And that's exactly the way it happened with the first triumphal entry is how it will happen with the ultimate triumphal entry. We will meet him in the clouds and then escort him as he finishes his descent, finishes his coming. He doesn't boomerang and go back up to heaven. So um, in terms of when it happens, that happens at the end of the tribulation. As Jesus said, Matthew 24, 29, after the tribulation. Like it's crystal clear, 
after the tribulation of those days, they will see the sign of the Son of Man, etc., etc. How are we also in, in churches these days misunderstanding the millennial reign or lack thereof? Or what, what is the proper interpretation of that as you see it? So, and this is where the church fathers, obviously, the church writers got off um, because of replacement theology, which has dominated the church throughout most of its history from pretty early on. Again, Gentile arrogance. They reject the idea that Yeshua is going to literally come back and rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And so this is something else, you know, sort of the other half of the body of Christ, those that are reformed, believe in supersessionism, replacement theology, they teach, no, there is no literal millennium. He's just going to come back and will enter into the eternal state, so to speak. But the scriptures are clear, as Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father, then he will sit on his throne of glory which is the throne of his father, David. The Davidic royal dynasty will be reestablished. Where was the throne of David? It was on Mount Zion. It's not in heaven. He's presently seated at the right hand of the father. And as it says in Hebrews, what is he doing? Waiting. Waiting until the day comes when he will crush his enemies like grapes, when he will make his enemies a footstool under his feet. He will come back and restore the throne of his father, David, from Jerusalem. The Torah, the knowledge of God, will go out from Jerusalem. The knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The scriptures, not just in the book of Revelation, but throughout the prophets, describe this age that is much better than this present age, but it's still not perfect. And that's what we refer to as the millennial reign of Jesus. It's the transition into the eternal state, but it's a thousand year transition and it's not something to be overlooked. Do you think that it is overlooked or misunderstood or just put on the shelf as it were? Because if he is going to rule and reign with a rod of iron, what is his standard going to be? Well, you and I know it's the Torah. It always has been. And because of those who are antinomian or anti-Torah, they just choose to forget that because, well, that can't be because the Torah was nailed to the cross. It, right. it can't be that Yeshua is coming back and ruling a thousand years according to the Torah. Yeah. Is that it, what it is? It's a big part of the problem. So, I mean, throughout Ezekiel 40 through 48, clearly a temple will be rebuilt. It gives us the blueprint. Sacrifices will be reinstated. And so you get your, again, typical just you know, evangelical New Testament center, they're gonna quote a few statements from Paul, kind of twist them a little bit and say, that's impossible, that would be blasphemy, you know, because um, he is the once and for all sacrifice for sin. And I go, yes, absolutely. But what they don't realize is there was never atoning sacrifice for sin in the first place. The overwhelming, most Christians have no understanding of the sacrifices, etc. But I'll just throw a curveball. So, most of the Christian church, yes, they reject the idea that there will be a messianic Torah during the millennial reign that we will live by. They reject that. But here's the curveball from the Hebrew roots community that is very Torah focused. There's also this issue, which is there are some changes to Torah. So this is where theologians refer to the Messianic Torah versus the Mosaic Torah. You see it again there in, in Ezekiel, where some of the sacrifices on Pesach, on Passover, are a little bit different. You see some changes. So yes, there will be Torah, there will be the instructions, there will be the ways the Lord will be taught, but there's actually some modifications. So that's just an interesting, because people say, the Torah is perfect. And you go, well, if the Torah was perfect and complete, then Yeshua never would have had to come in the first place. It would have been all sufficient. What it means when it says the Torah is perfect is it is perfect in terms of what it was designed for. And so it is not the embodiment of complete perfection. The embodiment of perfection is Yeshua. And during his reign, there will be Torah, will be taught to the Gentiles. There will be a discipleship that will be ongoing. There will be emissaries that go out from Jerusalem teaching and discipling the Gentiles during the millennium. And the scriptures, the prophets talk about this. And so uh, it's, it's fun to think about, to meditate upon, and get excited about, really, because this is our inheritance. This is, this is why we're laying down our lives. This is why we're embracing the cross. This is why we're making sacrifices, because we're gonna inherit something far better. And um, so I think we should talk about it a lot more. Yeah, well, let's talk about it. You got me curious now, but now this is not to say that this is going to be a different or a contradictory Torah. This is going to be a Torah completely in harmony with what was given to 
to Moses? It's just maybe expressed differently. Is that what we're saying? Like, what are some of the differences here? I mean, again, it, the, 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 we get hints. We get okay. little clues. And I only throw this out just because it's fun. Um, I don't know all the differences, but sure. you, you do see some differences. Like, for example, the, the, the Passover sacrifices, I don't remember exactly. You know, it's like, it's like um, you know, a, a, a ram and a couple goats and a few heifers and this and that. But then when you look in Ezekiel, it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And so you see, again, just glimpses, hints of some variation. And so it just opens up the interesting question. Why? What differences? And so forth. So my point there is not... Uh, to undermine the beauty of the Mosaic Covenant, but just to say there are still some things that we don't fully understand. But yeah, absolutely, there will be there will be Torah. Mm-hmm. Now, the other interesting discussion is you go, well, how will that be for those who are in their glorified? We will be in our glorified, eternal, immortal, resurrected bodies versus those in their natural bodies. The overwhelming majority, by the way, of the sacrifices in the temple pertain to ritual temple purity. Like that's the majority of it is ritual temple cleanliness, so to speak. And then you have all sorts of other issues. And a big part of them, a big part of the sacrifices during the millennium will continue to be pertain to ritual temple purity. Primarily, I would speculate for those that are still in their natural bodies. Mm. We'll be perfect. We'll be sinless. In our glorified immortal bodies, we will no longer wrestle with sin. So how will we relate to the temple versus those in their natural bodies? I'm not entirely sure, but it does make for an interest. And and to be honest, it's a discussion that very few, you can't find a lot written about this Mm -hmm. in academic uh, literature um, because it, it is a bit speculative, but I think it's I think it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating too, because people bring that up as like, there's never gonna be sacrifices again. But I, I say to people, I think some of this world, especially those in organizations like PETA, are gonna lose their minds when this happens. And that's how maybe you know this all comes down is because this happens again. <laughs> and you know, it's, that's gonna really, in a term, separate the sheep from the goats. <laughs> yeah, I love in Isaiah 25, the marriage supper of the lamb, um, it says, the new CSB translation, I love the wording, it says, and he will serve choice cuts of meat. And that's at the marriage supper. <laughs> and so I know, because you, you're, are you a vegan? I was, you I'm were. a reformed vegan. Reformed. <laughs> so I always have to apologize to the vegetarians, choice cuts of meat, and then it says, and fine aged wine, in which case we have to apologize to all the Baptists. But there's gonna be, a, a, but again, we're gonna be in our glorified, resurrected body, so it, things will be a little bit different. We won't have to worry about... Uh, GMOs, et cetera. Yeah, or beer bellies, or this type of thing. But anyway, that's a, that's a whole different point. But um, I'm looking forward to the marriage suffers. <laughs> Just to see what unfolds, because that sounds very interesting. All right, so Joel, we've got a lot more to talk about. We are gonna touch all kinds of sacred cows here put them to rest. And so uh, when you come back next week, I think we have more here. So Looking forward to it. All right, thanks. Joel Richardson here on Shabbat Night Live. Thank you for making it happen. We'll see you next week. Until then, Shavua Tov.